Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. The topic of this roundtable discussion was navigating social situations, and its diverse panel included Anthony Ayani, Sangeeta Jain, and Vanessa Lista. Anthony is an autism self-advocate, a former NCAA Division I basketball player, and a motivational speaker. Sangeeta is the mother of an autistic young man, and she's also our Global Autism Project partner in Chandigarh, India. And Vanessa has an autistic brother and is a kinesiology and psychology student. Other community members who participated in this event were Mary Johnston, Andrew Bennett, Priya Vijayan, Beverly Sujit, Happy Aurora, and Anshul Sharma. As with previous community events, we hadn't originally planned to produce a podcast episode from this discussion, but we later thought it would be great to make this conversation available to our podcast listeners as well. We apologize for the inconsistent sound quality, but I assure you that the stories and perspectives shared by our guests are really worth listening to. In today's conversation, we discuss strategies to mitigate misunderstandings in social situations, respecting personal space and boundaries, teaching social skills to young autistic children, teaching peers how to communicate with autistic children, and action steps towards true inclusion. In this episode, discover what's possible when everyone gets a chance. To learn more about the panelists in this discussion, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Roundtable discussions like the one you'll hear today are open exclusively for members of our online global autism community. We select a different theme each month, and our moderators monitor posts daily to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. Let's go around and do some introductions. Sangeeta, do you want to go first? Oh, me? Okay. All right. I'm a mom. I have almost a 22-year-old young, handsome man with autism. I started my journey when he was not even two in India. I mean, like no one knew about autism at that point. And that was the era of no Google, no smartphones. And believe me, we did not have the desktops also at that time. So my journey started like that and I've come a long way. I guess now we, I also, look after a NGO school where before the lockdown we had about 170 students 
we do have virtual online meetings, everything going on, and we are in touch with 130 students still. Thank you. Thank you, Sangeeta. Anthony. Good morning, everybody, or good evening, wherever uh, you are at right now. My name is Anthony Ayani. I'm a current self-advocate as well as um, an autism advocate and uh, anti-bullying advocate for the Michigan Department of Civil Rights. I was diagnosed with autism when I was four at age five, you know, was told by doctors, professionals that I would, you know, not be successful in anything because of being on the spectrum. And then fast forward a few years later, I ended up graduating from high school where I ended up going to Michigan State University where I played uh, basketball for Coach Tom Izzo and the Michigan State Spartans. And not only did I graduate from Michigan State, but I actually became the first known Division I college basketball player in NCAA history to play with autism. And I'm about to be a soon-to-be, soon-to-be first-time author. My uh, book, Title Centered, will be available on September 7th. So I'm very excited about that. I'm also a national motivational speaker. But in my free time, I'm with my beautiful wife. I've been together, I'm married with for eight years. And then our two beautiful, handsome kids, Knox and Nash. So I'm a husband and father, which, uh, you know, takes up, you know, quite a bit of my time, you know, especially these days. But I'm not complaining. So yeah, that's me. Happy to be here and hope everybody's doing well and staying safe and healthy. Thanks, Anthony. Vanessa. Hi, I'm Vanessa Lista. I'm currently a student at Westchester University. I will graduate this December with my kinesiology and psychology degree. My goal is to become a pediatric physical therapist. I'm currently applying right now, so hopefully that goes well. I'm also a former ABA therapist and a special needs sibling. Can we have some introductions from our audience members? Andrew, are you there? Yeah, there I am. Hey, uh, my name's Andrew. I'm from Houston, Texas, United States. I'm a self-advocate as well as a ABA therapist, behavior technician at the University of Houston in Clear Lake right out here. Great. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. And Beverly. So I am also the parent of a special needs child of a son on the spectrum. And I recently qualified as a special educator, working with uh, children with uh, intellectual disabilities. So hello, everybody. Hi, Beverly. Thank you for joining us. Priya, are you there? Yes, Rachel, I'm here. I'm Priya from Bangalore. I work as a special educator at Academy for Severe Handicaps and Autism, called as ASHA. I've been in this field for about five, six years. And I love doing what I do. Thank you, Priya. And is it Dhruv? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Happy Aroda. And I'm from Chandigarh, India. And uh, my son is going to be 22 years. And he's on spectrum. And um, he's in the school where Sangeeta is a vice principal from Soren. So, and I'm uh, at times, you know, just working as a volunteer there. Otherwise, round the clock, working with my son. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go to Mary, Mary Johnston. Hi. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mary Johnston, and I actually own a blog called Autistic Rainbow 15, where I am an autism advocate. And I'm really excited to be with you all today. Glad you're with us, Mary. Okay, guys. So our first topic is strategies to mitigate misunderstandings. And I'd like to open this up to our self-advocates first. So 
Anthony, if you could share what your experiences are in social situations, like specifically what have you struggled with in the past and what have you learned to help you in those situations? I think for me, Rachel, it's kind of shying away from situations at times because especially when I was in school, whether it was middle school or high school, like there were always times like in class, like I did not want to get called on to answer a question because I always felt like that if I were to say something that was really weird or just really out of the ordinary, that a lot of my classmates would just look at that and go, you know, why would he say that? You know, that what, what kind of answer is that? So one of the things that I learned, especially where my teachers came to play was they always told me that if there was a question that I didn't know, or if there was an answer that I was going to say that they would just say to me, you know, go ahead and tell me your answer. And then I would tell me, I would tell them my answer, but then they would put my, they would take my answer and take it in a different direction. So the class could understand what I was trying to say. So that kind of gave me a little more confidence to now I can raise my hand. Now I can go ahead and tell my, and say my answers. And that way my teachers can kind of help steer my classmates in that right direction. Even today at work, like, are there still times where I kind of have those awkward moments of, okay, should I tell my colleague this? Should I say this to them? Should I kind of like tell them I need help because I really do need it in certain areas at work? Yeah, I need to. Are there still times where I walk up to my supervisor's cubicle and then once I get to their cubicle, I immediately turn around, go back the other direction? Yeah, I do because there still are times where I still have those shy moments, but then I kind of need to take a couple of deep breaths and then just be like, okay, they're here to help you. They're here to help you be successful and they want you to be great what you do. So if you can't ask them the right way, if you can't say the right words, like they will help you along the way. So definitely earning a lot of trust from my teachers and my colleagues, even some of my closest friends, it kind of helped me become a little bit more confident and kind of being um, socializing with others as well. Got it. And could you talk about your experiences on the basketball team? I know you talked about this in your podcast episode, but I think it's really interesting how you have to learn how to interact with people on the court and off the court also. Yeah. So I played on a team full of guys at Michigan state that were the Kings of sarcasm and jokes. And one of my biggest weaknesses being on the autism spectrum is I'm very black and white and I cannot understand jokes and sarcasm really well. Like if somebody's joking, but I take it seriously, like I kind of lose my mind. If somebody's being sarcastic and I really can't tell if they're being serious or not, like I get so confused. So there were so many times in that locker room at Michigan state where I was like, okay, is this person being serious? Like, are they kidding? And so early on, it was a struggle for me, but like, you know, there was a little incident we had in the weight room between me and one of my teammates who plays in the NBA, Draymond Green, where I didn't understand a joke he was saying. And then it got to the point where I got so upset with him. And then he was like, you know, don't be on the team then if you can't understand jokes. And then my strength and conditioning coach kind of, you know, stopped the situation by telling Draymond, hey, here's why Anthony can't understand your jokes, you know, because he's on the autism spectrum. You know, he's autistic. A lot of things are very black and white for him. You know, he doesn't understand your jokes because he thinks sometimes you're picking on him. So after that, you know, my teammates kind of had a better idea of, how my mind processed things, you know, how my brain processed things very differently than they did. So there were times where some of my teammates were, were joking, but I, in my mind, I didn't, I couldn't tell if it was joking or being serious. I wasn't afraid to lean on to a couple of guys and say, Hey, 
was so-and-so kidding or so-and-so being serious? And they were just like, no, he, he was just kidding. Like, don't worry about it. But if there was like, hey, we got to be back here at the arena tonight. We got to shoot free throws at nine o'clock. But if they said it in a sarcastic way and I still can't tell, I would still lean on my teammates or even some of my coaches and go, hey, so-and-so said we got to be back here tonight at nine o'clock for free throw shooting. Was he kidding? Was he serious? I can't, I couldn't tell the way because of, because of his tone. And then the response would be, yeah, we got to be back here at nine o'clock tonight just for 20 minutes of free throw shooting. We're good. So just being able for me to lean on my teammates and kind of lean on my coaches again, because I talked about that trust process earlier, you know, for me to be able to lean on them and go, hey, was he being serious or was he just kidding? But if that incident in the weight room when Draymond didn't happen, you know, I really don't know how I would be able to communicate with all my teammates like I was able to the last couple of years during my time at Michigan State. And Vanessa, could you talk about your experiences with your brother and how you've had to learn his own boundaries that he set with people around him? Yeah, so with him, I, I, as a reminder, I don't know if people listen to the podcast, but he is nonverbal. So with him, a lot of it just has to do with, like, you can tell if he's uncomfortable if he'll put his, like, hands over his ears or um, he starts whining a little bit. Like, that's kind of his indications. So it's not as much as Anthony where it's, like, understanding sarcasm and stuff because we don't really know exactly what he's catching on to or not. It's more so, like I said, like if he just feels uncomfortable in the situation, he'll whine and complain or hold his hands over his ears and kind of tuck his head in. That's more of his signals for things. If someone like comes up to him and tries to like have a conversation, it's a lot of trying to let people know that he has issues with communication and things like that. So he's always with us. So we're there to help him. but. It, it's difficult with him since he's nonverbal. Mm, got it. And Sangeeta, how about with Suvrit? How have you established those boundaries with him? I do. I mean, like, I, I can totally understand what Vanessa is saying right now because my son is also nonverbal and he falls into a moderate to severe category. You know, I would just like to say over here, like definitely we have to teach uh, the social skills and everything. But what we call as advocate, I call this as love. For me, you know, any person who would be in vulnerable situation with or without label definitely want someone to stand by that person, support him, speak for that person. And so is our, you know, children or people on spectrum. So that is what like definitely we have to teach them for me i started early and for what i understood to build on the social skills was definitely uh, you know preparing him by setting up a routine and uh, using a lot of social stories because in india we have like a lot of guests and weddings and you know it's like a joint family i live in so he's exposed to pretty much situations where he is totally whining, flapping his hands, closes himself in the room and wants everyone to go back to their houses and all that stuff. Like, And sometimes you really don't know what to do. Be with your child or be take care of your social responsibilities that you have. So social 
a story is really really helped and building on communications definitely is very important but for me what worked for me in my life was uh, the social stories with the visuals like preparing for the holidays weddings etc so and also i guess uh, as i say the love it's like you know you're sometimes uh, always there as venessa said like be there with them and uh, sometimes you have to tell other people um, that where they coming from because you won't be he, he won't be able to ask questions like anthony and explain to people at times that where they are also coming from yes exactly so if we're talking specifically about teaching social skills to young children like sangeeta said social stories are helpful what has been helpful in the past in your experience vanessa whether it's through physical therapy programs or anthony even um at some of the schools that you go to when you do your anti bullying how do you teach the social skills to the autistic children themselves whoever wants to go first on this well actually speaking as like my aba side one thing i was in charge of was we did like a social skills group every week and we all kind of were assigned to our own person but we would have a bunch of us um so others on the spectrum we would all kind of have like a little group and we would just pretty much do like play time trying to get them to engage with other students like asking to borrow the toy or share the toy things like that just and we would go over social stories we would have them all sit down and have them like answer like what they think would be the appropriate answer to things stuff like that but yeah that was a big part of it or even just going into social settings like going to the mall or things like that and just having them practice like how to order things and like pay for their item things like that that was like a big part of it with my brother they often would take him to places like a fast food restaurant and just teach him how to read the menu and order what he wanted and pay for it kind of thing just to practice those kind of social skills and those techniques i think that was like a big part of it but anthony if you have anything to add i'll let you do that <laughs> i was going to say too vanessa um like i've in not just schools rachel but like i've been to different nonprofit organizations that kind of teach young students with autism, you know, about the proper social skills. I've seen nonprofit organizations where they have big classrooms that are set up like either like mini grocery stores or convenience stores where they can go in, practice buying things off the shelves and then going up to the cash register and practicing how to pay for items. I think one of the biggest helpful things for our community is like having classes like that, the social classes and being able to teach our kids things like that. Another thing too that I've witnessed probably more in the schools is that especially in the classroom area is I've seen teachers kind of teach younger students about, you know, when you introduce yourself to somebody, what do you say? And there may be times where, you know, there may be nonverbal students, but the one way they've been able to communicate with me or other teachers is they obviously have the note cards or they have the communication boards that they use saying, you know, my name is so-and-so through cards. So it just as a way for nonverbal students and nonverbal individuals on the spectrum to be able to communicate. So just seeing where we have come as far as, 
you know, like technology and teaching our kids and just doing the little things to help them become better from a social standpoint, it's been really helpful. And I think what I would like to see more and more is, is the K through 12 in the public schools getting more involved in that as well, because so I help coach basketball, girls basketball here in Livonia at Livonia Church High School. And Churchill High School is really known for being one of the top schools for students with autism because they do have one of those mini stores that they practice with. They do have like, you know, laundry rooms that the kids practice with and how to do their own laundry, how to put the coins in the slot. So if we had like a lot of public schools that were able to do things like Livonia Churchill High School does, it could really go a long way away in helping the our young people out there on the spectrum, you know, communicate and be more social. Yeah, I would like to add over here, like, you know, in India, we are, I, I don't know, decades behind the technology. We still do not have that ACs in place to teach our children communication effectively. I'm sad to share that, you know, in India, when the children are too young, somewhere we do focus on the academics part, like teaching ABC and all those academics and parents somehow feel that once they learn the academics, they're going to go to the regular playways and uh, kindergartens or school, and they're going to learn naturally from everyone. So over here, I guess we lose out on the initial years to teach the social skills. That's very, very common over here. Even if the parents, they come to know about it. I don't know somehow why are they into that kind of denial thing and focusing too much on the academics, but we lose out on those crucial years of the social schools. There are very, very few schools probably I can count on my fingers and say that, okay, in all over India, they would be probably teaching social skills. And uh, to seclude them, to send them to the special school, you know, where you would learn some social skills. Again, that's kind of seclusion so parents don't want to send their children to the special schools because they're too cute two three four years old and uh, somehow you know those baby words and whatever whatever even if they're not behaving nicely is accepted by everyone at that point they don't understand once the child is not going to be any longer four or five is going to be very soon 10 11 12 21 22 and so on and it's no longer going to look cute and nice and be accepted by the community. They're going to be totally secluded. So mostly when people come to us in the special schools, it kind of gets a little late for us to start also. I somehow believe that sometimes it's very difficult to unlearn things that you have learned when you were young than to learn new things in life. So as everyone say, shares that, like when you have to start very early and that's where in India we are lacking trying to get into the mainstream schools with no support systems in place for children with special needs and autism and especially with non-verbals and other. That's where we are here. But Sangeeta, I'd love for you to share um, the group home that you've just developed because I think that is social skills. That's teaching them how to live together. Definitely, definitely. I, I, I definitely uh, feel that communication and everything is very important. And what I have learned and what I have understood in all these years of 20 years of my working is communication is an integral part of the social interaction. But doing activities together is also very important, like sports, 
eating food together, sharing your food, you know, if you have the vocational things. So if there are six, seven steps, one step is done by one, second is done by second one and third. And you do see like when people are there, they develop a special bond. Two, two, three students will develop a special bond. They will touch at the photograph and say like, this person is not here. And somewhere, you know, wait, look at the door and then start their activity. The, the minute they come, you can see that smile on their face and they will start doing and, you know, get into their work like, oh, this person is here. So it's so lovely to see. And somehow when we wanted to do a group home, it was like, how are you going to handle the force? So somehow these four students are the ones who share a very special bond with each other. Three of them are totally non-verbal and one is verbal minimal verbal I would say so uh, it was like during the first wave we were it was always my dream I still remember Molly asking me the year like when are you going to do it and I said 2020 and 2020 was of course the pandemic time and the second wave is really hit very hard in India it's it's pretty scary we just coming out of it we lost quite a few lives here so it's right now getting a little better. And the, we just decided in one week, like I looked out for a place, rented accommodation, and I just called up and said like, oh, before this third wave comes, we really don't know what's going to happen. Let's do it. So the four adults, almost like one is 19, 21, 22, and 22. So we started with the group home. All four of them are living together. I came today to my mom's place because I never wanted them to come to me. But it's really wonderful. And we were very scared that how they're going to live together. They're going to miss their parents. They're going to do all those things. But I mean, like the minute they see each other, they don't want their parents. How <laughs> lovely it is. And it is like, I feel it's like normal adolescents and the adults, like they want their friends rather than their moms, which I thought would be like, they would be, you know, they want their moms because how helicopter parents we are at times. We still are, but they are different. And that's what the group home, you know, started. When we started with this, we learned like how important it is for them, that social interaction that we are talking about, even if they are non-verbal. It's wonderful to say, I like I, I sometimes tell one boy to say, okay, go uh, wake that person. And even if the non-verbal, how they, you know, juggle with each other. I, It's like life, every moment is such a beautiful uh, you know, it gives me so much of, I don't know, I don't have words to express that feeling. I did not imagine that all four boys are going to be so happy together. Well, congratulations, Sangeeta. That's a huge accomplishment for your community, too. Thank you. So I also want to talk about kind of the nuances of social skills. Like when we're talking about boundaries and respecting boundaries, how does that transfer over when you already have a relationship with someone? Maybe this is more directed towards autistic people who can verbalize, but oftentimes I hear that they're not sure if they're crossing a line or maybe they end up pushing people away because they say the wrong thing or they're too direct. So do you have any experience with this, Anthony? Yeah, all the time, especially when, you know, trying to date somebody in high school, there were times where, you know, if I had, if I really liked somebody and I said the wrong thing, for whatever reason, that person's not talking to me the next day. But what I didn't like was I didn't get an explanation why. 
And then my brain would kick in, okay, this is a situation I can't let go. And it would just bother me and bother, bother me and bother me until, boom, I would have another situation come up and I completely move on to the next thing. But there were times where, you know, I, I had the conversations with my own parents, you know, saying, you know, if there's times that people are mad at you, just kind of give them their space. And then when they're ready to come talk to you, they'll let you know what's going on. And so that's kind of how it was for me in high school. Like if there were times where somebody was really upset with me for, for reasons, I don't know why I would just let, you know, give them their space because sometimes people need their space. And I didn't understand that being on the spectrum at the time, I didn't know what space was because I always wanted to be around people. I always wanted to high five everybody. I always wanted to give everybody hugs in middle school and high school. I didn't know what space was until I had that talk with my, with my mom and my dad saying, you know, don't invade you know, somebody's bubble, you don't want to pop their bubble and, you know, just kind of be, give them space, give them a little bit of a distance. And if they want to come talk to you, then they're good. But if a person gets mad or upset, just kind of let them be. So, so being able to have that conversation with my family about what space is, it kind of really helped me develop plans of, okay, if so-and-so is in a bad mood today, just give them space. And if they come talk to you later, then they're good. But if a person's mad, sad, upset, just give them their space. So definitely having that conversation with my parents about what space is, it kind of really helped me understand more and help me help me compliment others as well, as far as like giving them time to just cool off, time to just gather their thoughts and everything. Great. I'd like to actually invite Mary Johnston to share something. Mary, I would love if you could give any um input on your experiences related to social boundaries and what you've had to learn growing up? I actually relate to a lot of what Anthony said. Growing up, I was really like a big extrovert. I was always trying to talk to people and I never really understood when people would get like mad or irritated about that and they'd get annoyed and I'd be like, well, what did I do wrong? I just want to talk to you. And originally I would get kind of defensive about it. I'd be like, well, that's not my problem. I was just trying to have a conversation with you. And it was also a struggle for me navigating arguments too. Because when I would get in an argument with somebody, I would always be like, well, you hurt me. This is my mood. And then, you know, because I was mad, they'd snap back. But then I feel like so I had a really hard time like calming down when I was mad when I was younger too so it would kind of just be like instead of knowing how to appropriately handle a conflict we would just kind of be adding more like gas on the fire and over time I had to learn how to appropriately handle conversations and conflictions with people Anthony was saying when he was dating somebody I actually was dating somebody back in um, middle school and he's autistic too and the funny thing is we really had no idea what we were doing because we had a really hard time communicating with each other what we wanted, where we were going. When something popped up, we didn't really know how to like describe it. So actually in speech was really helpful because we learned how to sit down with people and just kind of ask in a like respectful manner, like what's kind of going on. and if there's anything you can do to like resolve that conflict speech actually helped me a lot with um, learning those skills. Thanks for sharing that. And 
I'd like to now talk about how to teach. Well, you know, when thinking about meaningful inclusion and how to teach other people about autism, right? Like Vanessa, you were saying, sometimes you'll just let people know that your brother is autistic so that they'll be more understanding in that situation. How have you taught other people, maybe young children, how to communicate with autistic children? Well, growing up, I was in a smaller community. I I went to a private school. So a lot of times, um, like I grew up with those individuals for, I guess we were all in the same class for like 14 years of our lives. We went to grade school to high school together. So I remember teaching a lot of my classmates that were like my closest friends who he was like from the start because they would see him do certain things and kind of make fun of him. And I would always be the one defending him, like trying to teach them like how he didn't know any better that he's learning himself and everyone needs to be patient and kind about it and that he was nonverbal. So it's harder to communicate with him such things. Like I said, he would do things like he likes to chew on materials such as like rubber or he would always chew up all of my dolls things like that so if my friends came over they would see all my dolls had like bite marks and stuff in it and it was always trying to teach like they would think it was so weird and things like that but it's just that was his sense of sensory that he liked that sensation of chewing on things like that which is totally appropriate if you understood what he was going through. So a lot of times it would just be sitting down and telling them the kind of stuff he, that calms him down and that he does his little quirks, I guess you'd consider it. But it is really difficult. I, I found to even try to start to explain that to someone as it wasn't even really explained to me. I kind of just, as I grew up with it, kind of started to understand it myself And there's still times where it's like, I don't feel like I personally understand it, even as someone who's been in the field, because it's not happening to me. I can't, I feel like it's sometimes hard to express words when I'm not the one going through it myself. But just from experience, it's just teaching people to be kind and understanding of it. Can I also add over here, I have like quite a few experiences of these, uh, because I live in a community where the awareness is also very, very limited. And uh, to teach other people about the interaction and, uh, you know, I also have a daughter who is currently working in this field only. Vanessa, probably as old as you. So, uh, I mean, I, I always feel that, of course, awareness, acceptance is definitely a big part of it, but action definitely needs to be there if you were talking about the inclusion. Mostly, what happens is like, I oh, I, we, we know about it and we accept it, but what are you going to do about it? Are you going to say hi to that person? Are you going to spend time? Are you going to go for a walk or do something with that person? That's basically the inclusion is. And uh, the awareness and like acceptance are the, you know, definitely the key points over here and uh, to me to introduce to 
the community over here with you know um, autism is somewhere was very difficult because at home my daughter and my uh, son played very well but i could see my daughter not explaining to her classmates about uh, as you did vanessa probably i don't know um, but my daughter wouldn't say anything about her brother in school she would i would just probably never existed and when i came to robot i was like pretty surprised about that and uh, of course i also started the you know certain things like token economy when i was doing with my son with her also and things like that and very gradually i said like when she had she she had to write one article and she's like my article never gets selected selected she was like fourth fifth grade small small kid and it used to bother me a lot because i would feel that there's no sibling bond and something like that so i said like why don't you write an article about your son uh, brother maybe this gets selected and then she says no i said like let's give it a try and that got selected and that got a lot of acknowledgement and then later on when she was in 7th grade they had the group assignment where she invited her friends and they did a group assignment which was really really acknowledged applauded not only in our classroom but into the entire school because it went to the principal and that's where the school started with the visits to the school and we do have the visits what i want to say over here is sometimes when we want others to get into the action mode i'm sorry i'm getting a little emotional and taking too much of space to speak here but this is very important that when we introduce our children our siblings to the other people in the community we should not just talk about the deficits and only the challenges that they face because then it becomes like oh my god is probably to deal with them is very really very difficult so we should just you know change the topic and talk little nice things about them and how wonderful and how fun it is to be with them and then yes of course they have these these difficulties and this is how you can do it so we need to when we were talking about the inclusion we need to change the way we introduce the people on spectrum to the community because okay this is the sensory issue and this is what i also did that but when you want the others to get into the inclusion you know as we talk lot about the reinforcements they also need to be reinforced for them to get into this so when my son was small i always you know did that peer buddy system where like anyone would be my son's buddy would get beat become demonetized i don't know what you call the class leader of the classroom for that day so every day every child would say like oh i want to be sitting with surat i want to be his buddy today so i guess there has to be some kind of reinforcement attached to it and that's how i started inviting my daughter's friends to our home and so that they get reinforced and then gradually introduce surat to them and that's how we built up some sort of social interactions and i'm very proud to say that subrit is uh, very well accepted and uh, loved by everyone although the action point i am what i'm talking about is still lacking and i think that it will happen eventually because i know right now that probably i also made the mistakes of explaining too many things like oh he doesn't like this oh he doesn't do this and he doesn't this and then like you know people also take that space like anthony has to learn to take space people take lot of space from our children that's what i have understood so to bridge that space sometimes you need to do something which is you know fun or has to be a reinforcement for the other person as well
Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Go ahead, Anthony. <laughs> no, I, I was going to say, like, I totally agree because, and this is just my opinion, we're at a point now where we've, where we tried to develop awareness for so long. Like, we're kind of at that point where, okay, we're aware autism is out there. We're aware there's a community, but how accepting and how much do you know about that community? And I think as a society, we need to kind of get to that point, kind of like where we are for awareness. So again, like we know autism out, is out there, but what do you really know about autism? What do you know about some of the characteristics? And the one thing I've noticed in schools is that, and this is where I've kind of had to educate students after I present, is that when there's a student that just has an emotional outburst during my presentation, what's, and I'll ask you guys a question, what's usually the first reaction that a student will do when that happens? They usually immediately turn to that person and look toward the direction of that outburst. So what I do is, is I try to move to that direction on the stage so the students can keep their eyes on me and not worry about what's going on with the young student. And so then I'll have students ask me about why did that student have an outburst? And I said, it's because they're on the autism spectrum. It's situations and things they can't control. And they were like, oh, well, we didn't know that. Like, we just felt like that he was just doing it because, you know, he wanted to. I'm like, no, like, there are some things that individuals on the autism spectrum can control and they can't control. And for that classmate of yours, they may not be able to control those emotional outbursts as well. And so just that moment of being able to educate the young students about what one of those characteristics on autism actually is, it kind of opened their minds a little more and started thinking of, okay, now we know why. So now if he or she has an outburst in the hallway, we know why. And we need to do that with society because if we want to get to that point of being accepted as a community, we need to get to that point with where we are as far as awareness goes. So there's a lot of work to be done, but like getting the plan together of how to show the society what autism actually is, you know, we develop that plan and we deliver that plan things will be heading in the right direction as far as gaining acceptance in the community. Yeah. Along with all of that, I was just thinking like, there's a difference. I feel like too, like, I feel like everyone needs to learn this and I don't know the correct answer for this all the time. But when you do go to explain that to someone, there needs to be something to not make them afraid. Like it was said earlier when you're explaining it, you're saying things that they don't like. Sometimes that steers people away from them because they're afraid of doing something wrong. So I feel like sometimes it's more so, well, they love doing this. Do you like doing that? Like maybe go play this with them or things like that, like showing the commonness between people, like their similarities and their likes. Because if you get them to come together with something they like instead of showing them things they don't like, I mean, obviously there comes a point when maybe when it happens, you say, oh, okay, well, they didn't understand that, but let's try it this way. I think giving them a correction and maybe how to work with them. So if like you understand, like, so with my brother, like I understand his certain like signs and stuff. So if I tell them how I'm used to working around them and making him feel more comfortable, if you're giving ideas of like that, instead of don't do this. I think that's what steers people away because they're so afraid of upsetting them and not screwing up, if you will, not making a mistake. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, I'd be a nervous wreck too to offend anyone or upset them. Right. So I think a lot of it is yes, we need to 
teach acceptance and understanding of it. But I think a lot of it has to do with maybe us learning the social skills around it too, and how to accommodate their needs. Because if we're not accommodating what they need, then how are we supposed to understand them? It's funny, Vanessa, you talk about accommodations. Like a lot of those accommodations, like I got as far as like, you know, extended time on my tests, like accommodations for testing and just certain accommodations in the classroom. Like if most public schools are able to have accommodations for those for those students on the spectrum, then why can't society have those same accommodations? Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's I think that's the frustrating part is, yes, we're trying to teach awareness and acceptance but we're not being accommodating, which is frustrating. And I know there's still a lot of learning going on and people trying to come up with ways, but it is frustrating, to say the least. Agreed. I'm sure like we've come a long way and this too will be, you know, a process. Like look back 20 years, there was not awareness and uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit of acceptance came. So we are also, you know, the self-advocates and you, everyone is in the process of learning something new. And what can we do differently to promote inclusion, to promote action-oriented acceptance, not just a passive acceptance? You know, so I am very hopeful that we will be definitely able to steer this way. Definitely, you know. I often laugh like when people say, oh, we are so stuck in the houses and we are so secluded. And so I'm like, oh, really? Oh, this is our life. All our life we were at home, you know, mm-hmm. uh, never went out for the social parties and secluded from people. We don't feel different. I mean, I guess people will understand and uh, we have to, like the way I said, like how we need to communicate to people, probably we were also trying to do a lot of awareness and trying and talking a lot about their deficits. And now we know that they are our heroes, like, oh, wow. So we need to talk about them in a positive way. And I'm sure the minute we turn positive, the other people around us are going to be positive as well. Exactly. Yeah. I do want to just add something. It's this idea of a neuro-inclusive approach when teaching at a school. And, you know, when we're talking about maybe the struggles, right? Like what communication barriers might be between an autistic child and a neurotypical child. Sometimes there's so much onus, there's so much pressure on the autistic child to make the effort to change to learn the skills, to learn the phrases, and to put themselves in uncomfortable situations. But the flip side of it is actually putting the responsibility on the other students in the classroom to look for ways to communicate with that student, to look for signs that maybe they're trying to communicate in a non-traditional way. Like, why should it always be the autistic child asking to play or asking for the toy? Why can't it be the other students looking? Oh, maybe he wants this toy. Maybe he just doesn't know how to ask for it. So let me make the first move. So it's like teaching the other students in the classroom about that child's needs. And so that could actually foster more meaningful inclusion. There was one more point I wanted to make about this process of awareness and acceptance and 
there's a professor, I don't know if you guys know him, his name is Stephen Shore. He's a prominent self-advocate who teaches uh, special education. Anyway, he was just, I just interviewed him for the podcast. So stay tuned for his episode, which will be released next month. But he talks about the four A's of autism, right? Awareness, acceptance, appreciation, which is kind of what you guys were talking about, like appreciating what these people, what skills they have to contribute to society. And then that fourth A is action. So like knowing all of this, what steps are we going to put into place to actually create that change instead of just talking about it? Talking is good, of course, but how are we going to get outside of our echo chambers where we all know what the needs are? We all know what needs to happen, but what are we going to do in, our, in the communities on the ground to actually create this change? Like with Anthony, I think it's very important to hear self-advocacy because without that, you're kind of speaking for others who maybe aren't able to speak for themselves with things. And it's really important to learn from you guys how that you want things handled because there's so much I can do as a sibling just with what I've witnessed. Yes, I can help with awareness and stuff, but I can't really give that action until I know what action is wanted because I don't want to always feel like I'm being a voice to someone else when I don't really know all the time what they exactly want. So I think it's just very important to have all these people who are able to be self-advocates and speak from their own experiences and their own wants and needs, because without that, we don't really truly know what someone wants and needs. And I totally agree with you, Vanessa. The more self-advocates we have in society, the better, because you will have those self-advocates talk about their experiences growing up on the spectrum of being on the spectrum, what made them click, what didn't make them click. And one of the things that I'm proud that the Department of Civil Rights, who I work for, the one thing that they want me to do a year from now is they want me to start doing autism trainings to the public because they felt like, you know, we can't just put so-and-so in this position because they may not understand it as well because they've never been in that person's shoes. Whereas somebody like myself, a self-advocate, has been diagnosed with autism for almost 30 years. I was, you know, 28 years now. And I've been through all the goods and the bads and what made me click, what didn't make me click. And so if self-advocates could do those kind of trainings, like to the public, then yeah, like we're going to start kind of itching our way more and more toward the acceptance piece. So self-advocacy is a huge deal. And, you know, I encourage every individual who's able to do it to self-advocate, not just for yourself, but also be a self-advocate for the entire community as well. Exactly. And I think to go on with that is a lot of things now are all on social media. And I think things can be changed, like altered with what it really should be. So it's nice when you see platforms such as like TikTok now, I see there's a ton of self-advocates on there speaking for themselves or siblings like myself who or mothers who go through it all the time and it is amazing to show that acceptance online and explain what they personally need or what they've witnessed their sibling or child needs and I think that's very important since our society is so big on now the social platform I think it's great that that's a way to give people a voice is they're finally opening up and feeling safe on there absolutely I'm glad you guys brought up the online world because this is something I wanted to touch on with regards to 
social interactions. So Anthony and Mary, what can you say about how you've learned to navigate the boundaries in the online world? I think for me, you know, kind of, again, making sure you word things right. Because the one thing I've noticed is, again, whenever I email somebody or I text somebody, whether it's at work or people within my social group, and I text something to them and I don't get a response, it's like, okay, like, are they avoiding me? Like, are they not avoiding me? Or I feel like that they're saying things people will say and I can't tell if they're angry or not. And that's the one difficulty I've always had with text and email or even messaging on social media is that if you can't tell what a person's response is, like you're going to lose your mind. And I'm one of those individuals where if I text, you know, my best friend and he sends me a response, and I look at that and go, man, like, why is he so angry at me? But then he'll say, hey, I was just like, I wasn't angry at you. You know, it's just my response. And I struggle with that. But that's why, like, for me, what I try to do is pick up the phone and call that person. But I'm one of those individuals, and this is funny because, you know, I'll use this as an example. If my wife and I want to do takeout from one of our local pizza places down the street, I hate calling in. And it's funny because I do motivational speaking for a living, and I talk to thousands of people live in person. But, yeah, she, my wife's like, you know, you can't make a phone call, like a five-minute phone call to order pizza or something. But, yeah, you can talk to, like, thousands and thousands of people in a room. But for me, it's just like a comfort level, too. So the comfort level I have talking in person, I'm more comfortable with than I am talking to somebody via text or via email or via phone because, and I guess this is where my visual learning kind of came into play in the classroom was I was more of a visual learner and working one-on-one with my teacher because I was more comfortable doing it. And I think that's kind of where it's kind of, you know, rubbed off onto me being more used to talking people face-to-face because that's how I was with my teachers and my classmates at the time. Whereas now if I talk to somebody on social media, I don't want to say I'm not comfortable with it, but it's a different conversation because you're not having that conversation with somebody via Zoom like we are. You know, I'm fine with Zoom because I because I can see the person, but if I can't see that person, like it's really, really difficult for me. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Anthony. Mary, do you have something to share? I actually do. So one of the biggest like awkward scenarios for me when navigating social boundaries would be starting a conversation. So a lot of the time I didn't really know like what to say to kick it off. So I would start with like just classic small talk, which I was never really a fan of, but it was kind of like the best way to start it. So I'd be like, oh, how was your day? And, you know, we'd start off a good conversation based off of that, but then I would just kind of kick into my special interests. And sometimes it would be hard to kind of figure out what the other person meant when they started like looking away or acting um, disinterested, or they would kind of just make excuses not to talk to me because they were sick of thinking about those things or talking about those things. So I had to learn how to talk about something that we both liked. And that we could both stay on a topic for a little bit, but also how to like transition in between topics. Like, for example, we can talk about my special interest, for example, Disney for like five, 10 minutes, like the new shows on Disney Plus. And then we could say like, are there any shows you're interested in right now? And then they could talk about theirs and then we could transition to a new topic is um, something really helpful that I've learned from that. Do you think that's the same for the online world and social media? I think 
being online and social media is actually a lot harder to communicate with people because you can't hear their tone of voice and their faces. With real life, I can tell if I'm making somebody upset and due to practice, I can walk away or be like, oh, it was nice to see you or I can apologize. In online world, sometimes punctuation and grammar can make it hard for me to tell like, like, oh, are they mad at me? Or if they left me on red, does anyone else get like super worried when they leave you on red? Because you're like, oh, did I say something? Do they hate me now? Are they mad at me? <laughs> like, But in reality, they just had to like go walk their dog or something. So <laughs> I think um, communicating with people online is a lot harder than like face to face in person. Yeah, I think a big takeaway is that, you know, there's that myth that autistic people don't like to be social, but that's far from the truth, right? It's just a matter of socializing in a different way. And I think the hardest thing about socializing as an autistic person is the person really giving you a chance in general. Like a lot of people would spread a lot of like vicious lies about me and they tell me like, don't hang out with me. I'm boring. I'm too fixated on something. But in reality, I'm a really nice kind-hearted person. And, you know, if you're loyal to me, I want to spend all my time with you. I want to talk to you. I want to hang out with you. I want to like go to the mall with you. And, you know, if people are just more open, they can have a really fantastic friendship with an autistic person if they just give us a chance, you know? Thanks, Mary. All right. We're going to wrap up here and now I'll turn it back to the panelists. Do you have any last comments or any conclusions that you would like to make based on our conversation? Yes, Anthony. So I think for me personally, it's just to continue to get that message of acceptance out there. You know, I know there's still some of the community that aren't ready for that yet, but in my opinion, I think a majority are. I think as long as we continue to get that message out there, continue to educate the public, continue to educate society, about what autism is, what the characteristics for it, like Vanessa said, how to accommodate that person. I think that's on us, whether you're an advocate or self-advocate, let's continue to preach acceptance to society. And hopefully two, five years from now, we're at that point where we want to be. Yeah, I would like to say, like Anthony said, like one in 54 is getting diagnosed with autism. So I guess and uh, we're going to be a big community. There has to be acceptance and act- acceptance and the inclusion will be naturally done because there will be no option we will be a big community in ourselves so I sometimes feel sad like till the time you don't have someone in your family you do not talk about a lot about awareness acceptance and action and inclusion and the minute you have someone in your family we talk a lot about all those things I wish and I hope that you know without having someone in your family of not autism, we talk about acceptance and action. So that is my hope. But I'm still like, as I said, we're going to be a big community. We are a big community. So there has to be inclusion. And even if they don't, I get, I believe they're going to be secluded since we are going to form a big community of of ours. I agree. I think both things were beautifully said. I think a lot of it, though, could be helped if we taught people at a young age because I think if you teach acceptance and patience at a young age people be more accepting there would be maybe less bullying if you were more 
open to people instead of if you don't like trying to teach at a young age, like growing up with it is one thing, but not having that, I think it's still important to incorporate that in maybe learning and education at a young age of why people may be different because we're all different in our own way. So if, if we're just giving excuses or making people feel like they can approach these people, then nothing is going to get done. I think it's important to teach these people that it's okay to accept people and for people to have their own thing. Because without that, I mean, how are other people supposed to accept us if we can't accept them? Yes. All right. Thank you guys so much for your time and for sharing your expertise with us. I will see you guys all in the community. Thank you again, Rachel. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Navigating neurotypical social situations can be stressful for many autistic people. Saying something that could unintentionally upset others or not understanding subtle social cues can lead to rejection and exclusion. True acceptance involves giving people space to ask questions and learn from each other. As we normalize accommodations beyond school and the workplace, we can keep moving towards a more inclusive society. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your experiences and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community online to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Participate in important conversations on our platform and join us at our next monthly roundtable discussion. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.